For our listeners providing e-commerce accounting services, you know the pain of seeing lump sum deposits from Amazon or Shopify hitting your client's GL. It usually means you're about to spend hours manually categorizing revenue, fees, and other transactions before reconciling. E-commerce accounting doesn't have to be this hard. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, A2X, later in the episode. Hey, Blake and David. It's John here from New York. I'm actually outside right now shoveling my snow. So I wanted to give you guys a quick note to say that I'm listening to Cloud Accounting Podcast while I'm shoveling the snow. And when I'm done, I'm going to go to Earmark and get CPE credit for it. So just wanted to say thanks for making my snow shoveling much more bearable. And thanks for the amazing ability to get CPE for that. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks for a great show. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. Good morning to you. Saturday morning, February 26th, David. Good morning to you. It's been a tough week with this whole like Ukraine-Russia thing going on. It feels weird to be online doing the usual thing when like a country is invading another country. Like this is the weird cognitive di- dissonance of the internet now where if something horrible is going on in the world, we we see it firsthand. Like, so I have my iPad open with the news playing and there's like social media video of, of planes shooting bombs at people and it's strange. Yeah, and it's hard to like digest the real impact yet. I think it's so early, but it does kind of impact us. I think I saw Acumatica that's all developed in Russia, the code. Really? Oh, wow. Russian engineers. And so there could be an impact on our industry. And I think we're going to start to find this out. And I, I think there's other apps that have engineers in the Ukraine as well. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, I think in a week or so, we'll probably start hearing some stories of it impacting our industry more directly. Yeah. You know, outside, obviously, fuel costs and everything else. The one thing that I did see that is tied directly into what we talk about all the time is this idea that one way the international community could stop Russia is by cutting off Russia's access to banking, international banking through the SWIFT payment system. Yep. They did that, right? No. So Boris Johnson of the UK, prime minister, and I think Biden has, I'm not sure if Biden has said this too, but there have been world leaders who have said that we need to do this. We need to cut off Russia from the international banking system, because that would hurt a lot. But this is the problem, is that a lot of countries aren't willing to take that that hit themselves. And there's actually a very simple way to solve this war, to stop it without force, which is sanctions that actually do something. Well, because like right now, I know that Russia's been kicked out of the Eurovision Song, Con- song Contest. Yeah, that's really going to hurt That's the kind him. of stuff that's yeah. being reported on the news. Like, this is, I, I don't know, it's bananas. So, so this is the thing about the sanctions that, you know, the news that you, you have to dig a little bit to find out is that, yes, there, there are sanctions being put in place, but the most meaningful sanctions would be on international payments and finance and banking, because that basically would stop trade with Russia in most countries, because if they can't transact in US dollars, it's very difficult to do international trade. Yeah, I just anyway. Google search. And I mean, there's news articles that are half hour, hour old, you know, regarding SWIFT and Russia. And so... I think next week, maybe you'll give a follow-up. Well, so I just wanted to like talk a little bit about Swift for, okay. for those who aren't familiar with it. It's really interesting to look into. So it's called the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, Swift. It's a Belgian cooperative society that serves as an intermediary and executor of financial transactions between banks worldwide. So to simplify this, every bank that uses Swift has a corresponding account with every other bank that uses Swift. And then Swift is the messaging platform on which they make adjustments to those interbank accounts. So that's how banks can send funds to send transactions to each other is using yeah, it's, Swift. It's like a, a global modern ACH in a way, right? Well, but it, it's where, old. It's, yeah, been, it's for yeah. wire transfers. So this started with, this was the original like uh, wire transfer system. So it's 11,000 financial institutions in 200 countries, and they, back in 2018, were exchanging an average of over 32 million messages per day. So if you can't send payment orders, you can't really do business, right? That's the idea. 
but you know, it's super inefficient. That's why wire transfers cost a lot of money. This is what a lot of these new fintechs have basically been operating around in many ways. But it's still super critical for like big business. This is how you do it, right? Big businesses send money through Swift, yeah. through wires. So it's been around since 1973. Originally started with 239 banks in 15 countries. And uh, before Swift, international financial transactions were communicated over Telex, a public system involving manual writing and reading of messages. And it was set up out of fear of what might happen if a single private and fully American entity controlled global financial flows. So actually, uh, Swift was set up as a way to decentralize banking, messaging, and all that. Interesting. So it's the theory that Russian business leaders, Russian banks, other people involved in the Russian economy will be mad that Swift got turned off and they'll put pressure on Putin to pull back the reins on his uh, exploits. Yeah, because it could potentially stop economic activity, right? It would have devastating consequences for Russia's economy. And then that would actually make a difference. That would put political pressure on, on Putin. So it's, it's an interesting idea. Of course, then the counterpoint is, well, Russia has been very uh, on the cutting edge with crypto and cryptocurrency. And so could they get around SWIFT just using cryptocurrencies? And this is the thing about crypto is not controlled by any single entity it allows both good actors and bad actors to circumvent the traditional payment rails. And if we did stop Russia from using SWIFT, would that just accelerate cryptocurrency as a means of getting around now this new restriction? So I think that leads us into app news, right? So SWIFT is a payments technology. A lot of apps that we talk about are payments apps. I also have four listener messages, but we promised last week that we would do app news first. So we're going to talk about that. So yeah, David. So basically, we have double the app news because we have the app news we didn't get to last week and the new app news this week. So, I mean, I have 10 or 12 browser tabs open with different app news. I know you have some share. Yeah. Um, what's, what's top of mind for you? I'll jump into the, these three. So you have Airbase, Brex, and then Payhawk. I think not many people are familiar with Payhawk yet, but Payhawk just took a um, $100 million round from uh, Lightspeed Venture Partners. And they really are going to use this money to attack the US market. So in the US market, Brex just announced that they're offering people to create multiple bank accounts inside their Brex mobile app. Now you can create up to eight accounts. So if you want to separate your payroll account and a marketing account and taxes account, you can fund, move the money between these accounts. So Brex is moving beyond just being a spend card, right? Which they the bank before, but now they're more functional bank, right? And actually kind of similar to Relay, right? You wait, wait, wait. So hold on. Accounts. You mentioned Payhawk raised a bunch of money though. So is Payhawk a Brex? Oh, it's a Brex type product. Yep. So, so okay. yeah. So, so there's news from Air, uh, Airbase. Brex and Airbase is also a Brex type product. And Brex type product, yep. So they're, they're all, they all started out as spend cards, corporate credit cards, essentially. Yes. With modern ability to delegate and manage and give access to everybody and do purchase orders and all that stuff, right? Yep. Spend, spend management. Spend cards, yep. Okay. But, but it's, it's opening up into other, expanding into other items. The other announcement Brex had, which I thought was kind of interesting, we missed theirs about a month ago, but they teamed up with one password. So these are, you know, those apps you use to share your passwords across your company, right? And store your, your passwords. They've teamed up with them. So now you can fill auto fill out card information at checkouts, right? And so I could, in theory, the way this reads is we're, our company's on one pass, one password, sorry, one password. I can put in a virtual credit card into one password. Then when you go to Amazon to buy something, it's going to pre-fill that credit card in. The virtual card. So you don't even have to like come get me. Oh, wow. Virtual card, yeah. In theory. It's kind of how it reads, but you know, some until you use these features, right? Sometimes it's hard yeah. to, to guess. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like that would be really cool if, if it was just a browser extension that automatically filled in the correct virtual card number to make the purchase because it could recognize what you wanted to do. And it eliminates that dance of you coming to me or sending a request through Brex, hey, can I buy this? And then you spinning up your own virtual card and typing it into the browser. Right. Right. It eliminates a lot of back and forth in theory. That's a, That was kind of interesting. And, and just to make this clear for folks who haven't used this, the whole idea of this virtual card thing is really interesting because the workflow might go like, David, I need to buy a piece of equipment for the podcast and you're the purchase approver. And so I submit 
an approval request, a request to purchase through Slack or something like that, and these apps route that approval to you, you approve it, I'm issued a virtual card number for just the amount of that purchase. And then I would go and type that into Amazon to use as my payment method. But you're saying we can automate the typing in of that into Amazon as well. Yes. That's pretty neat. And then American Express made announcements with with Airbase. So up to this point, I feel like all these neo banks and these virtual card companies, they're all on Visa or MasterCard. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? You want to spin up a virtual credit card, it's a Visa or MasterCard, depending on who you're using, right? Because Visa mm-hmm. MasterCard have these APIs, they're doing that. Well, American Express announced with Airbase that, so if you're using Airbase, you now can create virtual Amex cards. And this was not possible before. It was all these MasterCard. I don't think so. I mean, maybe it was, but it's been very quiet. But now I think that this is significant announcement. That's a big deal because people love their Amex points. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why folks don't want to move from traditional Amex corporate cards to Brex or to Airbase or whatever, right? Because they they love those miles. They love those points. Execs do. Previously, like all these companies have been built on the Visa and MasterCard APIs. And obviously, if, if people are building on the Visa and MasterCard APIs, they're not using American Express. So this is kind of American Express, I think, getting into this game a lot more seriously now. Nice. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Canopy. Accounting practice management software should bring together all your firm's mission-critical functions in one place. Client management, document management, workflow, time and billing, and payments to keep your team organized. Canopy knows that not all firms are on the same practice management journey or timeline, so Canopy lets you build your practice management platform as you need it. You start with client management as your foundation, then you choose the modules that your firm needs. And since nobody likes paying for modules they don't use, they offer modular pricing as well. Canopy integrates with QuickBooks Online, Xero, FreshBooks, CRMs, form builders, spreadsheets, calendars, email, and Zapier. They have a mobile app, centralized file management, fillable PDFs, a client portal, task management, and the list goes on and on. Via their integration with the IRS, you can easily retrieve all your clients' transcripts, notices, and child tax care credit payments without leaving Canopy. To try Canopy free for 30 days, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash canopy. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-A-N-O-P-Y. Well, let's see. What do I have on my list? Intuit news. I know you have earnings stuff to talk about. Before we get into that, maybe you could explain to me what you think about this new revenue share opportunity with QuickBooks. They've changed up how they reward ProAdvisors. So it's called the Intuit ProAdvisor Preferred Revenue Share Program. It's in beta right now and has only been rolled out to a few hundred ProAdvisors. And I believe this is what Hector Garcia was talking about with me on the Earmark podcast I did with him recently. My other show, Earmark Accounting Podcast, Hector Garcia joined me and we spent an hour talking about the future of QuickBooks. And he's a part of this new revenue share program, and it's changing how he approaches QuickBooks Online. Because for the first time, you can get pretty decent rewards for putting clients onto QuickBooks Online Advanced or any QuickBooks product. So before I get into the details, I'm wondering what you, if you have any initial thoughts on this whole change. I mean, I think I got more out of your interview with Hector than the article. I kind of have this article up that, that was on accounting today, but it feels like, or it smells like Intuit is finally going to remove that incentive to push enterprise down people's throats, QuickBooks desktop enterprise. Well, they didn't say anything about they're taking away the They're, not, they're not taking it away, but you have no reason to push QuickBooks online if the QuickBooks desktop enterprise commission is so large. Right. So they're and, making it more, yeah, they're making it more even. Yeah. Or they're, they're bringing the, the commission for QuickBooks online up to... I mean, it's not the same yet, I don't think, but it's still getting, it's getting better, right? So the, the way this works is if you enroll in this program, ProAdvisors get 30% of the build price on base fees and 15% of the employee fees for 12 months. Clients get their first month free as well as a 50% discount for the next three months. So there's a benefit on both sides. So how much do you actually make on this? I played around with it. It looks like, you know, you could get a few hundred dollars per QuickBooks Online account you sign up. They've made it a little more convenient because you don't have to 
bill it through to the client yourself. Like it, with a lot of these programs with this program in the past or into its discounts in the past, you as a firm had to bill your client and then you would get a discount. And so your margin would be there, right? Like what you pay into it, less their discount, and then you charge your client the full price. But that's a lot of work. So a lot of firms just never bothered to do it. With this, when you enroll in the program, Intuit will bill the client directly and give you a, a deposit for the commission. Yeah. And this is where this gets interesting because they have this verbiage on here about growing your revenue. So you're going to receive 30% of the build price based on base fees and 15% of the employee fees for 12 months. Mm-hmm. So like you're going to get a piece of the seat, the seat licenses. I think what they mean is by that by payroll. Just right? payroll. Payroll, pa- fees. payroll okay. is, is half of what the GL product is. I think, I think, you know, it's, it's more clear than many of these programs have been in the past, but it's still a little bit complex in that regard. You know, it would be nice if it was just a flat percentage. Well, they have, a, so on this, and we'll link this in the show notes. I'm on the website. So they have like a, a chart. Yes. That shows like how this calculates out to where, what you're going to get like a simple QuickBooks online, simple start, right? That's 25 bucks a yeah. month. It's discounted, discount per month. And it comes out, the rev share for the first three months is like $3.75. During that next nine, you're going to get that $7.50. But with QuickBooks online advance, you're looking at 27 then 54. So here's the thing, my thinking on this, like I, I've been in this space for a decade now. I've been a part of a lot of these programs with Zero, with Intuit, with many other different apps. And for me personally, I've never gotten that excited about any of these rev share opportunities. Because in the big scheme of things, how much of your firm's revenue comes from this? If you're getting maybe a few hundred dollars per client per year, and it's only for the first year, my monthly accounting fees dwarf that, you know? I mean, it's my there monthly are, fee is more than that. There are some firms that this is their bread and butter. This is the game they play. A lot of the VARs, right? This is the game they play. This is the game they're in. But it's it's a combination of a lot of things, not just this, because in it's merchant ser- merchant services. You build out the suite of products, you get people on it, and then you get that residual revenue for a long time. And right? you provide premium support that Intuit can't. You do all the setups. You yeah, but it's basically but it's a, a VAR. It's a fair, yeah. In the grand scheme, let's just say whatever, hundred thousand QuickBooks Pro advisors, the people that like this is the primary source of the revenue is probably a handful. If it's a hundred, I'd be surprised that are really, hey, this is how we make our money. But in general, and I've always felt this with every app developer I've always talked to, accountants don't want spiffs. They want easy to understand pricing and they just want to make sure your product solves the customer problem. Because really, and I've, I've had this, when an accountant asks me, like, I'll use it, but I want $20 per user. The second somebody else comes and spiffs, some your com- competing app spiffs that person $21, they're just going to move the clients. The people that chase these numbers, you kind of don't want as customers in a way. Yeah, exactly. Because they're just going to jump to the next guy. Right. I don't know. You see this a lot in merchant service. I think merchant service is the worst. Like a nickel difference and people are moving clients over. Yeah. If somebody is coming over to you for a discount on three months of their QuickBooks Online subscription, that's not like a good enough reason to take them on as a client. But like you said, I think there's a lot of QuickBooks Pro Advisors, or at least there's some really high volume ones where this is helping people get on QuickBooks, setting them up, charging a fee for that, doing support, like that's a big thing. And for them, this is going to make a big difference. But for if you're building a cloud accounting practice, if you're building a CAS practice or an outsourced bookkeeping practice or whatever you like to call it, don't make your decisions based on this. Making your decision based on how much rev share you're getting on QuickBooks Online is like making your decision of whether or not to engage in a business transaction based on the tax consequences of it. Like in the end, you should be making the decision mostly based on the business model, the business metrics, not based on a tax savings, because it's just not going to be that much in the end. If you're making a good business decision, it's not going to make you or break you. And I think the, the bigger here issues for accounts and bookkeepers is the whole, like who bills the client. And I, th- I think the ideal situation you'd want, okay, either I'm going to do all the billing in the client and roll it into my fees and then I'll pay into it for my all of my subscriptions, or it's best that all the accountant, all the clients just pay into it directly. But I don't know any accountant that is set up where 100% of their clients is one or the other. 
because yeah, Intuit, yeah. The, Intuit and other apps have these different programs. So like these clients came in under this program. These clients came in this way. These clients I added and I'm handling the billing for. Like from a management perspective, it's messy. Like mm. it's almost like you <laughs> almost want, you right? You'd, you'd almost, yeah. the, the best service would be like, solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I think accountants would rather have that clean over a commission in my theory. Which is why I just never really bothered with them because it was just too difficult to manage these programs. The time it takes to to build a client and then get the commission and then, you know, all that. It's just, it's not anywhere near what you can make if you deliver a really high quality outsourced accounting practice like service. So let's move on from that and talk about QuickBooks online updates. And then I want to talk about numbers yeah. into its earnings. So What's new in QuickBooks Online? We're talking about January because we've been a little bit uh, behind on the app news. So in January, QuickBooks announced three new features of Note. The Panda Dock Connector is one of the latest additions to premium apps. So QuickBooks Online Advanced, it's only for advanced, now has a direct connection to Panda Dock, which is a very popular proposal payments software that I used personally years ago in my firm. I loved how customizable it was. The proposals are beautiful. So it allows you to automatically create PandaDoc documents, customized vendor, customer-facing forms, all from within QuickBooks Online Advanced. There's templates. I don't know exactly how this workflow goes, but it seems like you can automate you know, creating of that from QuickBooks Online so you don't have to go into PandaDoc and do it. And then they sync. That's really neat. And that's in QuickBooks Online Advanced, and really that's being targeted at small business owners because in theory, practice ignitions on the... Accountant side. Accountant side, yeah. Yeah. Although I do know a lot of firms that use PandaDoc because of the customization uh, instead of practice ignition. It's sort of like, you got to take a look at both, I would recommend. They're very different tools. But yeah, and it's only QuickBooks Online Advanced. Again, more features coming to Advanced. That's where they're pushing people. You can now securely transfer your financial data to QuickBooks Online from Sage 50 with assistance using Data Switcher, QuickBooks' new migration partner. So they're going after the Sage 50 market, I imagine, to get them onto QuickBooks Online Advanced. Most migrations complete in less than 72 hours. I love these kind of services because if you're an accountant and you have a good relationship with one of these services, it gives you a way to migrate clients, migrate prospects without having to do it yourself, which is a huge time suck. And usually they're offshoring the labor part, so it can be a really... Uh, really cheap service, a really affordable service. And they'll bring over everything for up to two years in the past, which is great too. And in general, you can, like, there's other firms that kind of specialize this. Yes. So you can go to another firm, they'll convert your client, give you back the file, and you don't have to do any work. Yeah. And that, that's the way to go. You want the ongoing, right? You don't want to have to be stuck doing all these conversions. <laughs> I mean, that's and how you, I, And you want somebody who does it a lot. So they know all the tricks and the headaches and the stumbling blocks and... I'd prefer, I mean, if I had to pick and choose, I'm going to go with an accounting firm that works with the companies that do it than me try to work with the companies that do it directly. That's right. Finally, audit log data retention has been increased to seven years. I think generally seven years is like the, the max that you have to go back for stuff. So it's good that the audit log in QuickBooks Online now goes back seven years. That's great because now you have seven years of transactions entered by apps and it doesn't say which app put the transaction in. Oh, great. Well, hopefully they fix that Still, too, like, right? when are they fix that? I know if somebody's listening from Intuit, just put in the audit trail the app that put the data in, not the person who connected the app. Like, if you connect, like, that's the way it works. So, if you connect an app, let's say you connect Dext. Dext puts the transactions in the QuickBooks. It shows that, like, you, Blake, put the transaction in QuickBooks. <laughs> so, you never can really, like, well, what right. if you connect yeah. 10 apps? Like, I don't know which apps. I mean, you can kind of work backwards and guess, but it makes it very hard. Yeah, not a good implementation of that. Okay, David, what about Intuit earnings? How's Intuit doing these days? They were crushing it during the pandemic. Are they still crushing it? I think so. I think in general, they have the earnings, but the juice is in the, the conference calls, right? And I'm so glad I'm so glad that you take the time to actually look at these transcripts and read them. So at a high level, you know how they talk about their big five bets, right? Yeah, yeah. So they instantly come out talking about their expert platform. TurboTax Live, QuickBooks Live, right? This is now like the fourth year of TurboTax Live. This is now the second year of QuickBooks Live. They've doubled their um, customer base and they're finally seeing improved retention rates with QuickBooks Live. Doubled the customer base with QuickBooks Live? 
Yeah, from a year ago. But they didn't say what their base was. No, that, that number still, yeah, they have not actually released QuickBooks Live numbers numbers, right? But it also makes sense because I think we've talked about this before. It's very obvious that's what customers want. So I think they probably have way more people signing up for QuickBooks Live than they are prepared for as a as a product offering just yet. And so that's why they probably have people churn. <laughs> 200% growth is crazy for accounting services. Yeah. That's That's nuts. The other one is Credit Karma money. So we talked about that. That's the bank account for the consumers from Credit Karma. Yeah. They have fully integrated that in. So now 36 million TurboTax customers are going to be able to, to deposit up to $88 billion in their tax refunds into this checking account if they want. So into it, if one successful tax season, they could really be big in this peer-to-peer consumer cash bank game. How many billions did you just say? 88 billion in tax refunds. Okay. I'm trying to put this in context. Like, so 88 billion is like more than Tether, you know, the one-to-one crypto to US dollars. So like the instantly, I mean, that would be if they got everything, right? They'll get a good chunk of it though. So Intuit is going to become a big bank. I mean, they already are because they have this service, right? But they're going to grow their banking product so quickly because people are going to be depositing refunds to get it fast and then they'll try it. And then they'll use it and they'll probably stick around. Some of them will. It's all going to be how they roll that out in TurboTax and in during the wizard and the onboarding. And it's, it's brilliant. Confusing. But if they can guarantee you'll get it faster than transferring it to your normal bank, like, hey, we'll give it to you instantly next morning or something, people yeah. are going to sign up for in a heartbeat. Well, and why wouldn't they like front the cash? Because they know they're going to get it from the IRS. It's just a risk management thing, right? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's just so brilliant to like connect these two things, to connect your tax refund to depositing it in your new fintech bank account. What an easy way to just build a customer base. And then, you know, they get into their fifth fifth big bet, which is QuickBooks Online Advanced. A couple note here, they talk about, they want to offer uh, more deeply integrated partners because that's what's going to help them acquire new customers and have higher retention. It's just like you talked about the PandaDoc thing, right? Yep. They want to head down that path. They want to be the whole back office business suite. It's not just accounting. It's also CRM with MailChimp. It's proposals with PandaDoc, all that. But but now they're thinking, because as they're learning with QuickBooks Online Advanced, that they can, the QuickBooks Online Advanced is really designed for 10 to 100 employees. It's kind of their sweet spot. They're trying to disrupt Mm -hmm. that mid-market. But now they think they can go higher. They want to stay focused on the 1 to 100. But the way they're building the platform, they're saying it's giving them the ability to scale. They can actually serve bigger mid-market customers at a disruptive price. I love the mid-market. You know, I've worked for two companies that serve mid-market. It's so underserved. There's so much money there. You could charge hundreds of dollars per month for QuickBooks Online Advanced if it had all the features they need. I mean, up to a thousand a month. And I don't want to distract from this, but when you interviewed Hector Garcia, he defined how he defines mid-market. And I thought it was excellent. So everybody, there's a link in the show notes. Go to listen to that, uh, your Mark podcast with uh, Hector Garcia, because he just, I love how he defines it. Well, because he defines it based on the customer's need, the need of the business and not based on revenue. Or employees and all these other. Yeah. yeah. It's, It's based on what do they need out of their accounting system. And it's a, everyone should read that who serves small businesses that are up in that mid market segment. Yep. And so as they've continued to add these features to QuickBooks Online Advance, 70% are upgraders, right? So they're moving people from smaller SKUs of QuickBooks Online, but 30% are new to franchise. So new customers are coming right in. 30% like are just coming in and using QuickBooks Online Advanced. So meaning that they've never they've never used QuickBooks before, they're just going straight to QuickBooks Online Advanced. Yep. Amazing. Which is the most most expensive SKU. Took a little bit about QuickBooks Commerce. They're actually talking about, you know, they, between the Trade Gecko acquisition and the OneSAS acquisition, remember they turned off connectors for OneSAS, mm-hmm. right? So what they're saying is they had to scale back until they ensure they have the right customer experience. Right? Well, because OneSAS, one I'm sorry, but I've used OneSAS in the past, like myself, and it was the most frustrating experience out of, like, I still have nightmares about OneSAS. <laughs> it's just not a, it was not a good product. So when they acquired them, I thought, uh-oh. So this is happening, right? They're, they're realizing oh, this is harder than we thought. Yeah. And so, they, so they're, they're trying to just stay focused and keeping people's books clean. Because I think ultimately, now that, and this is the thing, the fact that they say the CEO of Intuit is saying things like, 
we need to keep their books clean tells me they're understanding the pain of accounting and bookkeeping because of QuickBooks Live. Remember I said like, hey, this could be good for all of us right, right. to it getting into the bookkeeping game. Because they're going to be bookkeepers, so they're going to feel our pain. If they want to start a quality inventory offering, an e-commerce offering, they can't have that messing up the QuickBooks data because that means they can't automate bookkeeping work. That's a great point. They're not really saying it, but the fact that he acknowledged the books have to stay clean tells me they understand that they can't have the books be messy. So so the thing about OneSAS that's interesting, David, just a side note here, the way that OneSAS approached trying to merge data or trying to like push data from one system to another is different than the way Zapier works. So Zapier is a push-pull system where it automates workflow, but it doesn't actually maintain a data set of its own. Yes. OneSAS said, we are going to create a central database of everything, a unified, grand unified theory of databases for all of your data. And then we're going to pull the data in from all these different apps and then store it there. That's going to be the master data set. And then we'll push it out where it needs to go. I think that in theory is great, but in reality, very, very difficult to do without messing up the data. And then you, you have these issues where you have to keep data sets in sync. And that's where it all got screwed up for me, was trying to use one SaaS with bill.com and zero, because this was when bill.com didn't have a connection to zero themselves. And so one SaaS was sitting in the middle, staying in sync with my zero data, trying to stay in sync with bill.com. But if anything went awry, it would mess up that central data. And then I didn't know where to fix it. I didn't know where the problem was. And then if I didn't fix the problem in all three data sets, it would sync back into the central database and then mess up my data again. And the argument could be made that your accounting system, zero, such intact, QuickBooks, that's the center of the universe. That needs to be the source of truth. That's where all the data should be. That's where it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why Intuit and Zero need to figure out how to expand their database capabilities beyond financial data. Because financial data is only one piece of the puzzle. You've got human data, you've got operational data. All this stuff is actually way more important than the accounting data in many cases, because accounting data is a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator. So that's the big problem as I see it. If if people can figure out how to solve that in the GL and have your GL be the master database for all your business needs, somebody's going to do that. And there are some new GLs popping up that are doing that. That's going to be a big deal. And then that becomes just a database that everyone plugs into via APIs to automate the flow of information. Actually, I'm going to pitch another interview I just did on Earmark. I just talked with Ben Taylor from SoftLedger. And Ben has built a, a GL that is API driven. As I understand it, all of the accounting data in the database there is accessible via API. And so you can conceivably connect into that and automate the flow of everything. Now, I don't know about the operational or anything like that. That would be a next level kind of thing, the operational data, but that's what we need. So if Intuit wants to win long-term, that's what they need to build into QuickBooks is like, I want to have my CRM data in the QuickBooks database, or I want to have my payroll stuff, right? That needs to be in QuickBooks, not in some separate database too. Yeah. And then the other note is that they really reiterate focusing on retention. Um, for QuickBooks Live, the retention's lower than QuickBooks Online. But what they discovered, they're different customers. A, cu a customer that chooses QuickBooks Online isn't looking for that same level of products and features and services, right? So there's somebody who chooses QuickBooks Live. So they're they're just being very intentional about making sure they're solving. Like I think before they attacked this, it was the same customer. I think they've realized it's two different people. The person that picks QuickBooks Online is much different than the person that chooses QuickBooks Live. And you have to build the right product mm -hmm. offering for QuickBooks Live for mm -hmm. those customers. So they're starting to figure out that there are two different cohorts and they're going from there. So this episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by A2X. Since 2014, A2X has helped thousands of online merchants and their advisors save inordinate amounts of time reconciling the revenue for their online stores. A2X posts tidy summaries of sales, returns, and fees from Shopify and Amazon directly into QuickBooks or Xero that exactly match the deposits that appear in the bank account, allowing you to accurately reconcile in just one click, giving you the confidence of knowing that your client's e-commerce financials are accurate. 
A2X has won the support of Amazon and Intuit and has hundreds of five-star reviews by accounts and bookkeepers in both the QuickBooks and Zero App stores. Cloud Accounting Podcast listener and e-commerce expert Scott Scharf said A2X is the gold standard in e-commerce accounting. ATX is a partner program for accountants and bookkeepers that includes one-on-one onboarding, training for you and your team, and exclusive marketing opportunities. To learn more about using ATX and get 50% off your subscription for three months by using code CAP50, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash A2X. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A, the number two, X. A2X, e-commerce accounting without the fuss. We talked about Intuit. Let's talk about Zero. Zero released a new feature, a new product, I should say, called App Launcher. It integrates the Zero App Store's apps directly into the My Zero dashboard via a drop-down tab with the navigation bar. So, are these just bookmarks? So, so think about it this way: if our listeners are either Google people. Right. And so you're in Google Docs and you can hit that little thing in the corner and now you can see Google Sheets and Google Slides and you can jump between the different apps. Or if you're using, if you're Outlook, uh, Office 365 and you're in the browser, you can hit the little thing in the corner and you can jump over to PowerPoint or Excel or Word. Oh, you can jump okay. Yeah. So basically built that. So all the apps you, you subscribe to or, or add on to zero. Right, so I've connected to your inventory and I've uh, mm-hmm. float and I've uh, added data Molino, whatever I've added. Right. I can just hit the button in the corner of my zero and I have a shortcut to all those apps. Got it. It's funny because it's full. Uh, the, the developers have to integrate in or so it won't show up here, but it's almost like full circle because so Intuit, when they first rolled out the QuickBooks app store, and it was not even called that then, it was called the Intuit Partner Platform, IPP. There was like a widget that was in the corner of QuickBooks Online and you could choose that and jump over to an app. So I could, from there, I could click and jump over to Dext and then in Dext, the developers would have the same widget in the corner and they could click on that and then you could jump over to Build.com. And then from there, you could jump back over to QuickBooks and it was like a menu mm-hmm. right, that connected these together. So it's kind of funny how like full circle these kind of come around. Now, from what I can tell, and you're the Zero expert here, prior to this though, the apps I'm using with Zero, I could never find or click on them and launch them from inside of Zero anywhere, right? Say that again. Like, like prior to this menu if yeah. it was zero there was no place for me to see the apps i've connected and just launch them right i think you could find yeah you couldn't like just launch them you could see what you connected but it wasn't like very visible okay um, so this is this is cool it kind of it makes me think of uh in g suite what, what do they call it now google workspace which i use i have that menu button with nine dots click that go to google calendar go to google docs go to you know all that it's they they copied that which is good because it works really well the vision of this I always thought was great that Intuit just it never really executed on fully is that becomes like a notifications. Well, and that's what Zero has tried to do with their uh, Zero HQ. But that, I, I don't know, I haven't seen that like grow. Like people, it's it's not getting the adoption that it needs. The idea was all these apps would send notifications into a single feed and then yeah. your team would be able to see all the updates. The, the problem is with products like this is all these developers are building their own product. Right. And they have to weigh all the features they have to add to their product. So, oh, contribute or interact with the zero notification system is just such a low priority. Right. They got way more not a lot. important things. Exactly. To do. And yeah. there's not a lot of bang for the buck. And, and nobody's asking for this either. Like, I've never talked to an account or bookkeeper that's like, man, it'd be great if when I have a bill to pay, you know, it would just show up in a little menu here. Right. They in just, zero. Nobody's yeah. asking for it. Yeah. That's a great point. They're also rebranding the zero feature requests to zero product ideas starting in April. They're going to change the voting system for zero features. I always like the voting system. So you can go into this. If you're a zero user, you can go into this board and you can look at the features and and vote on them. I've always like user voice. Yeah. Early adopter of that into it rolled out. I love that concept of people voting up what you should work on. Yeah. But the problem with zero is that they would just ignore it. So like all of these little features that would make a big difference to the US market got all these votes and then the the zero product people in New Zealand would just ignore it. Like they weren't using it. So you, you shouldn't have a board like this if you're not going to actually listen to your customers and build the stuff. And it's like criminal to have these feature requests out there for like five years or more too, like little ones that 
you could easily have a crack team go at it and do it and they just ignore it. So I mean, I, I hope- think it's a balance, right? Like what I like about it is communicating to customers. Here's the things we want to start building. Here's the things that are in demand. Yeah. And then if a customer asks for something that's really low, you can just say like, look, like nobody really wants it, right? You can show right. them that nobody really wants that thing. Right, right. Right. And the other side of this is I like it when apps actually have their Trello board. I mean, it could be any board, right? And they show the features moving through the pipe that they're working on or plan to work on or, or the roadmap. Because like, like, let's be honest, none of these apps are doing anything unique. There's no secrets. Yeah. Right. And, and everybody knows what bugs they are. People just want the visibility. Hey, like, I know your app doesn't do this. When are you going to add mm-hmm. this? And, and, and everybody's guilty of it. I mean, I've been going on with uh, Airtable. You can make these beautiful, like, card views in Airtable, but you can't hide the, the labels of each field. So it's kind of ugly. <laughs> like, like I, don't yeah, need, yeah. I don't need it to have a field that says first name and then last name, then have Blake Oliver. Just have Blake Oliver, right? Right. And it's been there for, you know, it's going five years. It's the same kind of stuff. Everybody votes for it and it never happens. So you're right. You have to back this up. It can't just be, give me your ideas. So zero is hitting the reset button. They're actually archiving all the old feature requests and they're starting fresh with zero product ideas. So this is a chance for them to actually listen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So just like, good thing all of you took time to vote for these features. Well, they did say that they have brought over hundreds of the most voted, commented, and viewed ideas. Okay. So they're bringing over the top ones, but it was like, it was out of control. There were just too many and too many they hadn't dealt with. And it was becoming embarrassing because every time somebody would comment on this idea that had been out there for like 10 years, it would go to hundreds of people who would then reply and say, yeah, it's amazing. They haven't built this yet. It's so wonderful that Zero has ignored us for all this time. And, you know, it's just not a good look. <laughs> so I don't know why, yeah. like there's all these product managers at all these companies. Like this is your fundamental job is yeah. to go in and curate this, work with this every day. Well, so this is the thing. It's like, you know, I, I feel for zero because opening it up to this is a bad idea if you're not actually going to use your customers to, you know, make the product better. And like, I don't think Intuit has anything like this because they oh, know they, they do. They have a feedback button where people can just give feedback on QBO. Yeah, yeah but there's but no like there's also a voting where per, There's a page to do votes, but it's the same type of thing. Like, unless somebody's curating it on a daily basis, like when I was with View My Paycheck, yeah, it gets rough. And, and if you want to taste it, set this up for earmark. I'm sure you're getting suggestions from your mark. Let people start yeah, yeah, voting what you should well, do. And mark. so that's the thing is like, I, I want to do something like this, but I'm not going to do it unless I'm actually going to say, we are going to dedicate a specific amount of development resources to building our user. Like if you're not going to prioritize the stuff that gets voted on, that's just insulting, right? That's worse than if you, to ask them and not do it is worse than to not ask. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, right? the IRS you're just wasting the same people. thing, right? Yeah. Like let people vote. Markets are conversations. So that's just my... Uh, my take on that. Do we have any more app news? But I've got listen four four listener mails, and I want to make sure we get to them. Just really quickly, a uh, former sponsor, Baco Tech. They've rebranded. They're now called Once. Once behind, Accounting. Behind the theory of touch it once, like like a warehouse. The best warehouses aren't a bunch of guys driving forklifts around moving product. The best warehouses like they put something where it needs to go and they touch it once. Right? <laughs> and that's the theory that, you know, for this product and solving for accounting firms and and tax numbers and data, you don't want to touch the numbers every month or now and then retouch them again in tax season. You just touch things once. So they've rebranded as once, which I thought is good. And then on top of that, they've been now accepted to the CPA.com's uh, accelerator. The CPA.com right. just announced, they announced 10 new apps, like five apps and then five ESG apps. Apparently, mm-hmm. they're starting to get into or green apps or whatever you want to call that these days. I got one more small bit of news. Uh, remember how Bench's CFO, accounting software firm Bench, well, actually, I would call them accounting firm Bench, uh, their CEO left, Ian Crosby, who was there for 11 years, founded the company. He has landed at Shopify. He is going to be running their Shopify Balance product, the product director for Shopify Balance. And Shopify Balance is a product that offers physical or virtual cards that merchants can use to deposit and withdraw money from ATMs or pay for merchandise online. So congratulations to Ian Crosby. I was wondering yeah, so it's, easy, uh, it's basically their their bank, Shopify's bank. Yeah. Right? And Shopify's on that same march, at, same with Square, where, hey, just keep your money in Shopify. <laughs> like you get mm-hmm. paid, don't, don't move it to another bank, just keep it here. And they offer bill pay and they offer all the other stuff in there. Yeah, so he's rolling there. But what's really interesting about this is this the next March where obviously he has experience with accounting. He has experience with bench. 
like, are we going to see Shopify make a move into accounting? It, it just feels yeah. like it's the next move for Shopify. Mm-hmm. Could, um, could, could, yeah. Bell went off for me and uh, Jason Richardson of um, Bookkeep kind of prompted me um, in this via indirectly via an email. But it's already hard enough to sync e-commerce data to the accounting system. It's hard to get it to match your bank statement. I mean, even our sponsors, I think in this episode, you know, we have X sponsoring, we have uh, Cinder. That's kind of their deal. But now what happens if you don't, there's no deposit to your bank account because you're, you're just leaving all the money in Shopify or inside of Square because they're not real bank accounts. You're not going to get a bank feed right. in the same yeah, way. Yeah, like, yeah. Is, this, is this setting up to be an accounting nightmare that the only way it's going to be nice is if you get your accounting through <laughs> Shopify or Square? That's a good, good question. And if you're omni-channel, if you're using multiple platforms, like, this is a nightmare. This is a potential setting up to be a potential nightmare if you can't get this data out of these bank accounts. I mean, I'd probably be recommending your clients not to use the bank features of these products. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. With direct connections to Amazon, Shopify, eBay, Stripe, Square, and 20 of the most popular online and e-commerce platforms, Cinder automatically categorizes and accurately posts transactions into the accounting system allowing you to easily prepare your clients' data and organize their consolidated P&L regardless of the number of platforms they may be selling on. Cinder allows you to use the general ledger of your choice, QuickBooks, Xero, or even Cinder's own GL, which is designed specifically for e-commerce businesses and contains everything you need out of the box to make tax season a breeze. Cinder can sync all the necessary details like inventory items, tax, shipping, discounts, classes, and locations. It even correctly handles the processor fees. With tools like a duplicate detector and rollback functions, you can rest assured your client's books will never get messed up because you can undo and restore any synced data with literally one click. If you need support from Cinder, they offer free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. To try out Cinder for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-Y-N-D-E-R. Let's get to listener voicemail. We have feedback on our discussion of compilations. Last episode, we were talking about Mazers and Trump and the compilation reports they do and how compilations are a weird thing, in my opinion. And I think one of my questions was like, is this common? Does everybody do this for small business owners? They show I, up with numbers and you put together a report? Yeah. I mean, and, and as, as I understand it, right, a compilation is basically I get numbers from my client. Often they've already prepared the financials. I put them into my template for my firm, put my logo on it, and then put a bunch of fine print on it that says I never looked at any of this. So my opinion is, my question is, at least in the last episode, my question was, why do we do these? Why do we do these as CPAs? It just confuses people. And that was part of the whole confusion around what Mazers was doing with Trump. We got all this news, you know, all these news reports saying that Mazers is retracting their audited financial statements for Trump. Well, they were never audited. This, this is part of the confusion. So anyway, here's some feedback from a CPA that actually does compilations. Hey, Blake. I am a listener to the Cloud Accounting Podcast and a CPA in public practice. I literally had this same conversation with one of the tax managers today. We were engaged to compile a set of financials for a client who already had nice-looking financial statements. My question was why are we taking their already professional-looking financial statements, rearranging them into a standard form, and handing them back? In my opinion, it is a crappy service that does not provide value and, if anything, has the potential to degrade the value of our brand. Keep up the good work, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for that validation of my thinking. As somebody who has not done compilations myself, I am just so flabbergasted by them. I just don't understand them, and I guess I'm not the only one. So to tie back to a little follow-up on uh, Mazar's dumping Trump, Trump has made some comments about this on Sunday. So this was like oh. right after we yes. recorded. And what he, he say, said, he, you know, he insisted Sunday that the firm Mazar's USA was quote-unquote broken by radical leftist racist prosecutors. Radical leftist racist prosecutors. Do you think he's getting confused between Mazars as an accounting firm and the New York Attorney General, who is a prosecutor? Yes. Well, like, the interesting thing that uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bra- Bragg and State Attorney General Letitia James, they're both black. So it's even crazier where he's. <laughs> where this is coming from, I don't know. It's a little crazy to me. But yeah. the fact that he used quote unquote broken tells me that- To describe Mazers. 
the described masers tells me that they got pressure and they cracked, they broke, and now they're oh. crying wolf on. Well, that's that's one of our they're theories. Not crying wolf, but they're gonna they're gonna th- turn state's, state's witness. witness, right? Yeah. That's our th- one of our theories is that they are under pressure from the attorney general. Uh, and he goes on to talk about how you know they've been threatened and intimidated by the yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's, office. that's how you get people complicit in criminal activity to uh, you know to finger the people who are up higher, right? This is the whole strategy. This is how you take down the mafia. You get some lower lower level people. You get the accountants, and honestly, this like is the, Law and Order one hundred and one, man. Yeah, you can watch exactly. any Law and Order episode. This is the this is the <laughs> the the whole episode every single time. I would love to play the Law and Order sound, but I think we might get sued. So. Let's hear from another listener. This is about timesheets. Continuing our timesheet discussion. Hello, Blake and David. I'm Eric Freint, president and founder of your part-time controller, LLC. We specialize in providing accounting, controllership, and CFO services to nonprofit organizations. We do no audits and no tax work. We have close to 400 staff members working with about 1,000 organizations around the country. I started YPTC almost 30 years ago working alone from my house. I enjoy your podcast. You and David have succeeded in doing something that I would have said couldn't be done. You created an entertaining and informative show about the accounting profession. I listen to your podcast while on the treadmill or outside on a walk. I often get the urge to comment on one topic or another, but I'm never in front of my computer while listening to you. Well, I was up early this morning, in front of the computer, so here goes. Regarding timesheets, and in the spirit of debate, I agree with many of the problems you've discussed. I have my own timesheet war stories going back to my public accounting days when I first graduated from college. But there are some significant benefits to using timesheets. I'll mention one here. They make it easier for organizations to hire us. How? The problem with fixed or value pricing is that value is subjective. What is the value to an organization of having a smoothly running accounting department? Or the value of getting timely month-end financial reports? Or the consulting advice we provide as we go about our work? Or the data visualization services we can provide giving organizations real-time, or almost real-time, information on their mobile devices, or any of the many other things we do for our clients? We think the value of what we provide is very high, but an organization may not agree, especially if they don't really know us yet as they contemplate hiring us. Billing by the hour is something organizations can more easily understand and are more comfortable with. Some may think of it as a convenient proxy for value, by which I mean that the more difficult something is the longer it must take. While I, you, and your listeners know that this is often not the case with the work our profession performs, it does make it easier for organizations to feel more comfortable with hiring us. There are other reasons why we feel that using timesheets, for the type of work we do, is superior. I would be happy to share with you if you are interested. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Eric. Can I just say, before we talk about this, that I'm so honored that we have the founder of YPTC listening to our show, 400 staff, 1,000 organizations, 1,000 clients across the country. I mean, this is a big firm, but you don't see them on the traditional accounting firm top list because guess what? They're not a CPA firm. And so they're in some ways invisible to the traditional accounting community, but they're clearly doing amazing stuff. I just think it's so wrong, right? That you have these organizations that are growing so fast non-CPA firms in the the CPA world like excludes them from all these rankings. So, you know, traditional accountants or accountants who are in like practices, they don't know about them. And uh, I mean, maybe that's on purpose, right? You don't want, you don't want people knowing that there are alternatives to the traditional type of practice. Especially people in the industry already. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. You don't want your staff. What what good does it do some list of top CPA firms if they start letting people that are doing very similar work and just as big, it's going to make other people, maybe I don't need to be a CPA firm either. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the timesheets. So this is a really thoughtful message. Thank you, Eric. And I have heard this, not just from you, but also from Kenji Kuramoto of Acuity. His reason, just like yours, for using timesheets is not that they're a great measure of productivity or they're a great way to manage staff. I think we all realize they're not good in that regard or they are, there are better ways to do it. It's that it allows you to get your foot in the door with a client very quickly. And it's hard to argue with that. The idea that if we get our foot in the door, 
we can demonstrate our value and then we can get them on a fixed fee or a value price package. But we just need to start working with them. They have an emergency. They need us right now. Let's just get an agreement out there, start working on an hourly basis. And that's easy for them to understand. And I think especially for the type of clients that YPTC works with, which are not-for-profits, they're more sophisticated. These are people who are used to hourly billing arrangements, like very familiar with that. It can make a lot of sense. But I would also say, like, maybe we, if we tried a little harder, we could figure out a way to communicate the value so that they would take a fixed fee or a value price package up front. And I got lots of ideas on how to do that, but we don't have time to get into that now. I, I suppose one would be just to look at it from their point of view. If I am a CFO at a not-for-profit or I'm a board member at a not-for-profit looking to find somebody to help me, I might be thinking in context of what would it cost me to hire this person full-time versus to outsource this work? And so what you're competing against is really the the total fully burdened cost of an employee versus an hourly rate kind of thing, right? Like that's how people perceive value. Like if I'm a business owner, I, I either have to hire this in-house or I have to outsource. So that's what I'm comparing against. I get this younger kid um, who's doing landscape work for me. And he used to just charge me like 25 bucks an hour. And then he moved to fixed pricing, right? Yeah. <laughs> for a project. Yeah. And I kind of feel like I'm overpaying now. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, like, see, that's psychological. The, I have right. not, but, I, but it's very difficult now. Now, how do I back in? Like how many hours is here? What, like, but at 25 bucks an hour, I'm like, okay, that's worth it to me. It was an instant decision. So just reinforcing right. the, the phone caller's point. Yeah, the, like the, I can instantly my brain process this and be like, okay, that's valuable to me. But the problem with it, as you discussed from his point of view, right, is that now you are already working with him on an hourly rate, which is not value priced. It's very hard for him to capture any more of the value. So yeah. you limit you limit your firm's potential profitability by starting off with an hourly rate. And now I don't care how slow he goes. <laughs> right, so that's better. If he takes a break, a half hour break and works for half hour and does it again and again and again. Okay, yeah. whatever. Because he's paying, you're paying for an outcome, yes. not for the in inputs. Uh, and you don't have to manage that, right? You can just say like, get the work done. I'm paying you this rate. Yeah. Okay. So last one, we got a Loom video from Ford Baker. You were just talking about Baco Tech, which is now once accounting. This is Ford, creator of, of that app. Hey, Cloud Accounting. I listened to your podcast this morning and really, really enjoyed it. As far as the time and billing thing goes, probably five, six years ago, I started going to five feet billing and I came up with a process that actually does the engagement letters and the bill at the same time. We still enter time so I can see which jobs are profitable, but I use it to gauge what I'm going to do next year, not what I'm going to bill this year. The concept of not billing flat fee really came home to me because I realized that if I had a bill and it came on my desk and we billed up $2,000 last year and at $4,000 worth of time. I'd mark it up a little bit for inflation, but I'd eat that I'd eat that other time. And the same thing was true the other way. We all talk about write-ups and we just went away from saying we bill on a standard hourly rate and said, this is how much we bill. And there's just a lot more transparency with it. An industry that prides itself on education and knowledge with 4.0 students strives for the benchmark of a 85% realization rate. We're trying for a B, you know, with our new technology, what we do, I, I'm pretty close to a 200% uh, realization rate just because the process is more efficient. So Ford still tracks time, but he's moved to fixed fee pricing and he's saying that he's getting a much higher realization rate. And I, there's one point that he makes that I really agree with, which is that we say as an industry that we pride ourselves on quality and, and our work and that we have the best people. But when you use timesheets, you're kind of, you're, you're aiming for a B, not an A right? Because you're measuring inputs and not outputs. And if we want to get A's, if we want to be the best we can be, we got to focus on the outputs, in my opinion. Timesheets inspire a sort of mediocrity because everybody is the same. It's If you're a high performer, you look the same in many ways as a low performer because you're all billing kind of the same amount of hours. And the only way to be a high performer is to just bill an insane amount of hours, which is not healthy and then, you know, hurts your performance. So we, we got to figure out a way to incentivize people to actually work less and do more to create more positive outcomes for clients. And I've heard from a lot of firm owners this past week, since we started this discussion in the last two weeks, that they went to their staff and they said, hey, would you guys want to drop timesheets? And the staff said, 
they liked the timesheets. At least the managers they're talking to like the timesheets. And you think, well, that's crazy. Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One is that these firms are being smart about the timesheets or smarter in that they're not using them to punish people. They're not using crazy budgets and making people work insane hours. So in that case, timesheets are you know much better. But we can still go further and we can encourage our staff who have been conditioned to use timesheets to not think about their inputs and to think more about their outputs. But in order to do that, we got to give them something else to track. We got to give them some other way to measure their own performance because we're accountants and we love measuring things. We want to measure how we're doing, but so we have to give them an alternative, something better than their timesheet to measure how well they're doing and to know that they're on track. And so that's what we got to figure out as firm owners and practice leaders. And David, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I have two quick follow or three small teeny follow-ups. All right. That, that I'll just, let you do that. Okay. And then we're going to do the outro. So yeah. last week we talked about how the PCAOB and the SEC don't really do much or it's just, they're not tough. The penalties are not tough enough to make a difference. And this week, two more articles came out that prove this. So the PCAOB, they censured PricewaterhouseCoopers, so PwC in Canada, $750,000 penalty. This penalty is because 1,200 employees shared answers to the mandatory training courses in auditing, accounting, professional independence. So they were cheating on tests. Cheating on tests in arguably our industry, which is supposed to have integrity. The greatest integrity. And $750,000. $750,000 and 1,200 people were cheating. Yeah. I mean, that's like one partner's compensation. And then um, Baxter International, which is a medical company, medical product information. Um, oh, yeah. I saw this. They had a restatement, right? They, fraud, they or... basically were not stating the way they transfer money around internationally, accounting gains for foreign exchanges. The point is, from 1995 to 2019, how many years is that? Almost 25 years. And they only got had to pay a fine of $18 million. And as part of this, the uh, leaders of the company are now waived from being investigated, blah, blah, blah. So they settled and they didn't admit wrongdoing or anything like that. And it's not even fraud, but they, they, they self-reported this once they discovered it. But the oh, okay. like, they just got it wrong. The penalty is is meaningless. And then the uh, apparently you, I can pay for something with crypto now, something that I use, Sling TV. So I, I use Sling TV. Mm-hmm. I can go in every month and manually pay. They now are offering a service called BitPay, so I could pay with my crypto wallet, pay for my monthly television subscription on Sling but I have to manually do it every month. Now I could pay six months up in the future, but it's not a subscription. If like, It's going to fall back to my credit card on file. Like I can't just sit it and forget it. I have to manually go in there and pay it every single month with my crypto account. But I can't pay for something with crypto. There you go. Well, not very easily though, right? We got a long way to go with crypto to be something other than a speculative asset. David, that's all the time we have. If our listeners want to send me a message... Send me a voicemail, send me an email, blake at blakeolivert.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn as well. David, how about you? I'm just on all the socials at David Leary. I'll see you around here next week. And listeners, if you want to get CPE credit for listening to Cloud Accounting Podcast episodes, download my new app, earmarkcpe.com. We put every episode up about a week later as a CPE course, continuing professional education course. You can get NASBA approved CPE. You listen to this podcast already. You're a CPA, you're a CMA. Why not get education credit for doing it? Make your license renewal easier. It's free. EarmarkCPE.com. David, I'll see you here next week. Time for the classifieds. As humans, we're programmed from birth to learn watching others. Video has the power to engage, entertain, and educate without ever feeling like work. When you want to become a QuickBooks online expert in the shortest amount of time, the Royal Wise on-demand web-based learning solutions are the obvious answer. With 40 easy-to-understand QuickBooks classes designed to bolster your confidence and increase your accuracy, Elisa Katz Pollock's training will take you from beginner to advanced user. Pick just the topics you need or save money by subscribing to their entire QuickBooks online library and coaching program for one low monthly price. Listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast can enjoy their first month of silver membership for only $1 using promo code PODCAST. So head over to learn.royalwise.com. That's royal like a king and wise like an owl. Register for a QuickBooks class, become a member for just a dollar, and make learning a hoot. That's learn.royalwise.com.
Hey podcast listeners, it's Blake and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded, because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor, or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.